to the Oros Westwatch podcast. I'm your host and producer, Nick Patel, a songwriter, publisher, and music professional. Alongside me have David Lowry and Chris Castle. David Lowry is a platinum-selling songwriter and performer for the bands Cracker and Kemper Van Beethoven. He currently lectures to music business students at the University of Georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist. Chris Castle is a music lawyer in Austin, Texas, where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights. So, for this week, we are kickstarting our series on music publishing. So today, we'll be talking about the basics of music publishing, and in the next two episodes, we'll go in deep dive into songwriter agreements. And music publishing is all about the publishers and the writers of an underlying composition. When you hear a record, you're listening to the sound recording, which is the artist, their performance. The words that you hear are known as the composition, which is the songwriter. And there are many differences between a songwriter slash publisher and artist slash record label in terms of two different parties and two different sectors of the industry, from the way you license works, the way works are treated, the usage of works, and etc. And in this episode, we will dive into the basics so that you have a good overall understanding of our publishing series going forward. In this episode specifically, we will touch on what a composition is and the copyrights that encompass it, different methods for exploiting compositions, songwriter and administration agreements, creative publishing, and the future of publishing. This week, we also have a guest, David Barbie, who is the University of Georgia music business director who works with David Lowry and is a fond former professor of mine. So he will be coming on to talk to us about the basics of publishing and we will go from there to complete our publishing series. So I hope you all enjoy it and I'll catch you guys next time. So as editor Nick had just stated, um, we have another guest in the episode which is David Barbie who is the UGA University of Georgia music business director who works with David Lowry and is also a very fond former professor of mine. David, I recently spoke to your class back in November, so I feel like having you on the show is pretty much repaying the favor. Um, But how are you doing today? I'm doing fabulously well. Glad to be here. Amazing to hear, as usual. And David Lowry, how are you doing? Yep, it's an all- uh, UGA music business program night tonight, isn't it? Because you're an alum. Indeed, I am an alum. And I'm so used to calling both of you guys David. So for this episode, I'm going to keep remembering to call you Barbie and Lowry, or else I yeah. won't know who I'm talking to. So That's right. Do you mind if we just call you David just to make it easy here? <laughs> <laughs> well, Barbie, why don't you start by... Just talking about your career and how you've got to this point. Um, well, um, I grew up in Atlanta in a musical family. My parents were in the business. My dad was a musical composer. And when I was, he played in big bands in the 50s. And then he was writing and arranging jingles, mostly when I was growing up, playing on Atlanta records like Joe South and Tommy Rowe and Billy Joe Royal and a bunch of other stuff that most of your listeners will not remember. And uh, But they were a big especially in the south and my mom was a singer and an actress so i grew up in the recording studio and um i played in bands my whole childhood and uh came to college at the university of georgia in 1981 to um go to journalism school 
And um, for a kid who, in addition to liking to write, liked rock and roll and sports, moving to act at the time of Herschel Walker, Dominique Wilkins, and R.E.M. was pretty great, especially the R.E.M. part, because once I saw them in a club, it occurred to me that there was life between me and my friends playing keg parties in suburban Atlanta and the Who playing in a basketball arena. But like up until that time, it's like the, how you got from uh, one to the other was a mystery to me. So once I encountered, you know, like the independent college rock scene, um, just totally changed my life. And so I, um, you know, to kind of started taking the band, playing in bands a lot more seriously. Um, I was making lots of recordings on a four track cassette and decided that what I was really interested in was um, engineering and producing records. So since I had a four track cassette recorder, I assumed that I was now qualified to be an engineer producer. So I started telling people that I was one and started recording bands first on cassettes and then going to studios with other bands. And um, along the way, um, picked, spent a few years playing in a touring punk band called Mercy Land and then stepped up a level from that and played bass in the band Sugar with Bob Mould. And all the while I was recording and writing songs and just I was always doing a lot. I do music. I was doing a lot of things with music. And so um, was primarily, uh, you know, producing and engineering indie records, bands like Drive By Truckers, who I still work with, uh, made a record with Cracker with 2009. Um, uh, Deer Hunter, Sunvolt had written some songs for other artists along the way and then was approached by UGA about being the director of the music business program in 2010 and never stopped doing any of the other stuff. So here I am in 2022, 12 job at UGA. David came on board at the spring semester of my first year. And um, I'm still making records and running my studios and, you know, writing a few songs here and there and have it. So nothing much. So we, we, we wanted to, Nick and I wanted to have you on because you, I'm like, I teach music publishing kind of very, very in depth. You know, I have my higher division class, but you have the, un, well, you have the thankless task of introducing our music business students to the concept of music publishing. Right. And that's why we wanted you to come on here, because I don't know, it's you have a knack for it. So um, and especially because Barbie also knows how to simplify things for students, um, especially because I, I took Lowry's publishing class before I took Barbie's publish, publishing introduction section of his foundations class. So I was sort of flipped and I kind of already knew pretty much the in-depth stuff before I even needed to know the introduction stuff. Um, but what I did love and what I always remember to this day was when Barbie made the song, I'm so glad I found my shades in class to represent how a composition is now copyrightable when it's in the tangible medium. Um, of course, we'll get all into this stuff um, in the future, but just as an example, and I remember, Barbie, I have to send you the picture, but somebody made like a drawing or an album cover kind of thing for a group me, like Avatar. I'm not sure who it is who did it, but 
I have to send that to you to show you because it really influenced all of us. You wrote a song on the fly in class, David. I do it every I do it every year, David. I have when I'm gonna teach the concept of the music bubble, a copyright. It's like when when is something copyrighted? It's like when it's fixed in a tangible form. I was like, so I am going to write a song. And sometimes I'll just ask somebody, what should I write a song about? And uh, Reed Kosky in 2019 said, uh, parties at the mall. I was like, parties at the mall. Okay, I wrote a song about that. But last year in Nick's class, I had lost my cheap sunglasses, um, not a CD of the ZZ Top song, but an actual pair of cheap CBS sunglasses and found them. And it was like, okay, I'm so glad I found my shades and just kind of went from there. And um, it's uh, anyway, so yeah, I wrote this song in the, and I know that the last chorus featured the line, I'm so glad I found my shades. You're still pissed about your grades. And um, so, yeah, I just I said, OK, so I've written this song and it is a great one. Now, is this copyrighted? And OK, so hold on. I'm actually going to hold you right there because I'm actually going to. You asked. Preface this for the listeners, because um, the most basic way to introduce publishing starts with what is a composition. I often confuse with a sound recording. So, Barbie, why don't you talk about that? Um can you also talk very briefly about the copyright terms in regard to compositions? Example, life of copyright, when a composition is copyrightable, and then we kind of just dipped into that. But just to reiterate what we're kind of going through to give more of a structure for the listeners. Yeah, first, just like tell us first what, like explain your version of what publishing is versus, you know, the other side of the business. And then I'd love to hear your explanation for when that, when you get a co- a song copyright. So the, basically any song that you hear streaming, hear it on the radio, hear a record is actually two things, a song and a recording of that song. The song is the composition. And if you hear, you know, a happy birthday to you, and I record a version of that. That's one. Ver- that's my recording of the s- composition. And each of the two of you could do this as well. We would have three recordings. David Lowry would be one artist. Nick Patel would be one artist. David Barbie would be one artist. But we would still ultimately have one underlying composition. People tend to think of these things like a scrambled egg, where they are one thing. And... Um, but of course, as far as the revenue stream goes and the intellectual property rights, they are two distinct pieces of work, both copyrightable in different ways. The composition, the song, and the master recording, also known as a phono record. Um, the when, I believe our next question was, when is something copyrighted? And uh, and that is not copywritten, folks. That would be if you're writing some copy for someone. It is copyrighted, and it is when it is fixed in a tangible form, meaning it has been written down, it has been recorded. You don't have, you haven't registered it with the government yet, but it is by the technical definition copyrighted when it is of, it is original, meaning it's your own idea. It is of sufficient materiality meaning it's not just one note. Um, It's got to be something incredibly memorable, like 
I'm so glad I found my shapes. And it must be, and then fixed in a tangible form. So that could be um, recorded into your voice memo, right? Mm -hmm. On your phone. Could be, uh, but it probably couldn't be written on a whiteboard. That's one example I give because the expectation that it would be erased at the end of class right. probably makes it not fixed in a tangible medium. But in general, pretty much any way that you put it down, that's a tangible, it fixed in a tangible medium, paper, your phone, whatever. Right, because before we could you still had songwriters and composers writing things down, but you're right, a whiteboard raised. There is no reasonable expectation that that is fixed. Right. But otherwise, it's pretty, it's pretty wide open. And then you mentioned the, the, the government and the copyright office. Explain that a little bit, because I think that was a good... You, you, get, you gain extra protection for your intellectual property if you register it, um, the um, copyright royalty board and any person who um, who writes music you can go online to copyright.gov and it is a relatively simple process to do this um, and if you've written a hundred songs you could even register them all as one collection so you don't have to pay a hundred registration fees which I think for people getting into this that's important to but um, you gain um, for one thing there is a record of what you've done um, if you have like the old school used to be referred to as the poor man's copyright as you would write your song, you write a lead sheet, maybe make a cassette recording of it and write the lyrics down, put it in an envelope, sealed envelope, mail it to yourself. So there's a postmark. So you have some record of the date. But um, if you have not registered your compositions with the copyright royalty board, you lose the presumption of validity if you ever sue for copyright infringement. Um, you can't sue for damages. Um, there's several other things, too, that are triggered by registering your copyright. So it is copyrighted. There frequently are ways somebody can prove that they wrote this song before somebody else wrote their very similar sounding version if there's a copyright infringement lawsuit. But um, registering with the government makes that a lot more certain. The point being the government provides a service to register your copyright, but it's, it's kind of innate and automatic, fixed in a tangible medium, and it's a unique thing, and it's of sufficient materiality, right? right. So now you've got a composition um, for a song, which we call the publishing. Mm -hmm. um, as of, so in the music business, there's two, in the recorded music business, there's two main branches. There's record labels, which own the recordings typically with the artists. And there's publishing companies that own uh, the composition along with the songwriter generally, right? So where are we at, Nick? Um, one question I think it could be quite beneficial for writers. Um, Barbie, is there a point in time where you feel like you really need to register your works with the comp with the copyright board? I mean, I know you mentioned litigation um, and and suing in case there is litigation. Would you say that's really the main 
point at which you would register your works or is there a point when you, you know, a certain song is X popular or making X amount of income where you say it's probably worth registering your works with the copyright office? The sooner you register it, the sooner that you have, uh, the, the, the sooner you have protection. Nick, the issue with waiting until my song is streamed a million times, I should protect this, is you copyright it. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, David Barbie stole my song. And it's like, well, here's his copyright from 2022. And it's like, well, my song was copyrighted, registered with the Copyright Royalty Board in 2018. And then I come back and say, well, I wrote mine in 2016. I just didn't record it until later. And then at that point, somebody else is going to say, prove it. And, um, and then that's about $100,000 worth of litigation in a federal court, <laughs> 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 which is what, seriously, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the issues with this is that's the benefit of registration is it's mm -hmm. you skip all the proving it's yours part and you just skip to the end part. You know, it's like, yeah. I like to like saving money by not registering your copyrights is like saving money by not changing the oil in your car. That a uh, mm -hmm. quart of oil is a lot cheaper than a new engine. And 35 bucks to register a collection of songs is a lot cheaper. It might be more for the collection as 35 per song. It could be 60 bucks, whatever. Even if it's, it's a lot cheaper than, as David pointed out, $100,000 of legal costs. Right. And with the compositions that we just defined, there are a few methods for exploitation. So you have public performance licenses, mechanical licenses, streaming mechanical licenses, and sync licenses. Um, just to keep it brief, we'll just stick with the four for now. Um, but Lowry, why don't you explain what these licenses entail for songwriters and publishers and how do they collect them? Yeah, so, so just as recording artists get sort of royalties from their get royalties from their record label per their contract right depending on sales or something like that and other things songwriters also get many types of royalties now we have developed um some nicknames for these different kinds of licenses right over the years and actually many have been incorporated into the law so the first kind of license you might get is called the first type of royalty that you might get is from a license called the mechanical license. The mechanical license applies to any copy made of your song and distributed, right? So for instance, if I'm a young band and I go out and cover David Barbie's song, right? I have to get, and I want to put it on a CD or vinyl or an eight track cassette. Maybe those come back, who knows. Um, I have to obtain a license from him and pay him uh, mechanical royalties, as we call it. If it's if you were signed to a record label, right? Say, say I was signed to a record label and we covered David Barbie's song, the rec and the record label wanted to put out CDs or vinyls or eight-track tapes, we would have to get a license from a mechanical license from David and pay him a mechanic the record label would have to pay him a mechanical royalty. Finally, if that work were put on a streaming service, it's a little weird here, 
the copy is the copy is actually being made by the streaming service. So in this case, the streaming service pays the mechanical royalty, gets the mechanical license and pays the mechanical royalty to David Barbie. So that's essentially sales and streaming. That's one source of royalties. Now, if a radio station plays my song, my song now, they need what's called a public performance license. And um, also, say if you have a mall and you're playing you know, background music in that uh, mall and, and they play my song, they need a public performance license for all the songs they play. And I would eventually um, receive a public performance royalty for that, although it's a little convoluted how that money comes to me. Uh, so that's the public performance royalty. And then finally, if somebody wanted to uh, put my song into a film or a video game or a television commercial or a television show, and then, you know, an industrial uh, you know, tr worker tr employee training film, anything like that that has audiovisual components, you have to get what's called a sync license, S-Y-N-C. And it was called a sync license because literally at one time when it was all analog film, you had one sort of set of, you had the film that was on sprockets and then you had the, the music and the audio that was on another thing that looked like film and they were synced up and lined up. So we call it a sync license. Those are the main three sources of royalties that songwriters and their music publishers get. Performance, um, public performance, uh, you know, mechanical royalties for, you know, copying, CDs, vinyl, streaming, and then sync licenses. Right. And David, specifically with PROs, which is public performance organizations who collect public performance royalties for songwriters, um, each country kind of has their own, but in America we have mm -hmm. three, BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC. Um, why don't you talk about how a songwriter registers with those organizations to collect their license, their royalties? Pretty much. Is that is that me or is it which David is it, David? Hey, David, which David is it? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> Let's go to Barbie. Great. Yes, um, the three major performing rights organizations in the United States are BMI and CSAC. Um, ASCAP and BMI are both nonprofits and they will take anyone who signs up registration with these two services is free. You apply to add to CSAC or they uh, reach out and recruit you. Um, so there's plenty of young songwriters who could do that, but for an unknown app and BMI are an automatic way in to have your music registered for performing performance for public performance. And, um, what they uh, what the performing rights organizations have is they are they have a blanket license that is by blanket license I mean every song in the in say we'll use BMI as our example 
if a writer signs a contract with BMI to collect public performance royalties and distribute them back to the songwriter, um, BMI can license the use of every song in their catalog to any user that pays an annual fee to BMI. And by every song in their catalog between BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC, if any of your listeners were to have a physical record or CD handy and look on the back, they would find that virtually all of them are affiliated. Every songwriter that they can think of is affiliated with one of those three organizations. So, so it's like I'm a radio station and I want to be able to play any song that I want. I get licenses with all three of those organizations, right? And that pretty much covers all of them, right? And you can't cherry pick. It's not like a radio station can't say, I want to pay less and I only want uh, Taylor Swift, the Beatles, Michael Jackson and Foghat. It has to be when you pay a fee, you can license all of them. And when you sign up with one, you can say, OK, well, I'm cool with you licensing my music or public performance with broadcast radio and Six Flags amusement parks, but not any Disney amusement parks and it's like it doesn't so neither work. side gets to choose right? right yeah blanket license okay interesting so I'll, I'll add one thing about that too um so yes if you're a songwriter to if you want to collect public performance royalties you associate with one of these three organizations and they go out and they collect that money for you and they bring it back. They get, they go out, they license, <laughs> they license your songs essentially. And then money comes into them and they divide it up based on some sort of statistical sampling or outright sort of uh, records of what was played when, and they pay it back to you. So basically the more your song is played, the more money you get. But there's some estimating that goes along, right? But the other interesting things that these companies do, they do that in the United States, but they have reciprocal agreements all over the world. So effectively, they collect all your public performance royalties globally. That's what they do. So that's all I was add. I was just going to add that. And for the international songwriters, you each have probably one PRO for your country. Um, so for our presence in the UK, you would have PRS. Um, Germany is GEMA, SSM for France, SOCAN for Canada. So just you have to look up which one is yours. Um, but just in America, there's three. Um, and then to add another ball into a mix, um, David Lowry wants you to talk about print licensing. Yeah, print print licensing is interesting. I would say that's more down in the like, say all of those, uh, uh, you know, public performance, mechanical sync. It's averages out once you have a pretty good sized catalog and have some minor hits. Those are about thirty percent, thirty percent, thirty percent, something like that, right? And then what's left over is sort of miscellaneous, but but print maybe like three to 5% of your income. And now most people think of print would be like those big song books or those folios or sheet music, or nowadays you might have 
um, like uh, music notes sort of apps that you can also buy, you know, tab or sheet music in, right? Those have become important. But kind of the the, the more, the re, well, recently, um, probably the biggest source of print revenue has become lyric websites and lyric videos and lyric display on streaming services, right? Sometimes your streaming service will show you lyrics. Sometimes there might be a, a lyric video on YouTube. Uh, you might have karaoke uh, videos um, and then lyric display on websites that have joined those traditional sources of print and, and actually created some, um, you know, it's not a huge stream of revenue, but like for me, it's probably gets to be about a thousand dollars a year. Um, but it's 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 a real source of revenue. And by the way, for print licensing, there are a couple entities that sort of are like BMI and ASCAP that will license uh, lyric display. One's called Lyric Find. And the other one is music's match, and it's music but with an X in the middle. Um, so, yeah, those those can be significant sources of revenue. Some writers that have their songs covered by bands, or say, uh, you know, in sort of gospel settings, things like that, might make a lot from you know just regular sheet music and stuff like that, and those sort of arrangements. But uh, typically, if you're writing pop, indie rock rap, you know, <laughs> uh, Americana, your main uh, source of print revenue is going to be lyric display on the internet. Cool. And we'll be talking about this topic specifically in future episodes to complete the publishing series. But Barbie, why don't you talk to us about songwriter agreements and the different kinds um, because songwriter agreements allow songwriters to write songs mostly full-time and it exploits these licenses that Lowry just defined for us. So why don't you just give us a brief overview about what these agreements are. Just as an artist signs a record deal, you know, the general public knows about that, songwriters sign a, a contract with a publisher who will commercially exploit their songs. They will collect their mechanical royalties, maybe from sources where they otherwise wouldn't be able to track them down themselves. They may help the songwriter place their songs with another artist. This is especially true in country and pop music. And they may um, place their songwriter's compositions in movies or TV shows. So there's three basic kinds of deals, as David referenced, that um, songwriters sign with music publishers. The first is what we're going to refer to as a traditional publishing deal. In this arrangement, the songwriter essentially sells the copyright to the music publisher. The music publisher now owns that copyright and they split any income 50-50 with the songwriter. The second type of arrangement is a co-publishing agreement whose nickname is the co-pub. And in a co-pub, the, the publishing company buys a lesser amount. And most of the time, this is going to be they now are a 50-50 partner in the ownership of the copyright. And in that instance, the publisher keeps 25% of the income and the songwriter 
gets 75% of the income. The other one is an administration agreement, which means the songwriter maintains ownership of their copyrights. They're simply paying the publisher a percentage of everything that is generated, which is usually 10 to 15% for doing all the administration functions, which could include registering the copyrights with the Copyright Royalty Board, um, uh, collecting mechanical royalties, and perhaps some work placing their songs. The way these things work are, song, again, the songwriter owns it outright. They pay 10 or 15% to the publisher for collecting, for doing all the administration functions and collecting and distributing their royalties. And it may be a higher percentage if the publisher places their song with another artist or places their song into a TV or a film. So traditional, co-pub, admin, those are the three basic publishing deals. So David, or Barbie, as I don't forget again. Yes. Can you talk about what your specific experiences have been with these agreements? Sure. Um, my um, personal experience is I've had an admin deal only since I was a young man. And the reason is because my songwriting was primarily uh, used in my own recordings or I was a member of a band and those bands recorded my meaning that um, as your listeners now know and thoroughly understand that my primary source of income is going to be public performance by my own bands playing my own compositions or mechanical royalties of my own bands playing my compositions. Um, so essentially it's not worth it to me to sell half of my copyright for so, or all my copyright for somebody else to um, just collect my mechanical royalties for me and send me my share. Um, but so that's why I've always had an admin deal. However, my publisher did has placed my song with other artists before. And um, one of them uh, did quite well. And they, um, and so they collect a higher percentage for that. They get 25% of anything they place with somebody else, but they've earned that additional percentage because they did the work to place that song with somebody else. The reason I am a fan of the admin deal, is just a basic personal belief as far as personal finance goes, that there's so many times in life you can decide I can have more now or less later a traditional publishing deal would be that because you're selling the copyright up front, you might get an advance, but they own the copyright and you have lost a lot of power. The other is the belief that some people, including myself has, which is I'll take less now to have more later. And so um, an admin deal, the advances are smaller. If you get one at all, I was relative unknown when I signed mine, my advance when I signed my admin deal was zero but I understood full well what I was doing, which was I was maintaining ownership of my intellectual property and that I would be getting a much larger share of the royalties as they came in and maintain decision-making control over how that music is used. So I had a similar, uh, basically a similar experience, except I split at some point I, my sort of songwriting 
catalog gets split into three parts. So when I, you know, we were coming up at about the same time in the eighties and that's the, and so I had a band where we collaboratively writ, wrote together. And uh, so we just got a publishing administrator called bug music. Right? That was mine too. Yeah. Right. There you go. And uh, you know, kind of a great brand, ground baking company. They're sort of the first like, publishing administrator that really kind of went out and sought out underground bands and, you know, got your publishing for you. So, so it was good. And then um, my, that band broke up and I, I ended up with the record contract with Virgin records. And I spent a couple years off and on basically writing this record before it came out. And right before it came out, I, I just thought, Hey, why don't why don't we just see if we get a publishing deal? You know, our manager had been talking about like a proper publishing deal. What would they what they what would they give me? Right. And um I was actually surprised at the offer that I got back because this record wasn't back out. And the guy, the the, the publishing executive who heard it just goes, I, I think there's like a couple hits on here. Um, or certainly like not hits, but like there's some radio tracks on here. And, you know, offered me amount of money that was kind of absurd to me at the time, you know, because I was like, I could live on that for three years, you know. So I thought about it and I thought, well, it was a co-pub deal. So I, I was going to get, you know, um, three quarters of the subsequent royalties, um, you know, after I recouped. And I thought about it. I go, well, you know. If I don't have to, you know, kind of go on the road and tour all the time to make a living, I bet you I could write a lot more songs. So that and then I entered for four records, a period of my career where I had a publishing deal and I got an advance up front. It was it, it worked pretty good. Right. Um, but, you know, like all bands, you have sort of a style of music maybe that you play and it's suddenly in favor with radio for five or six years and then you didn't really change but the public's taste changes and uh, you know i just wasn't going to write the songs that the publishing company thought would get on the radio so you know we basically parted ways i think one record short right and so then i went back to basically having a publishing administrator again and then I had to have a new publishing company to do that. But, um, you know, there's there's advantages to all of these companies. I generally do prefer the administration deal or the co-pub deal. But, um, um, you know, if, 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 it, if you can get enough money to say where, yes, you just kind of write songs for your band all the time, it's um, it's pretty good. You know, there's there's a point to it, you know, and and, you know, the other thing was what was interesting about doing that, doing the co-pub deal, you know, they really placed our songs really well in commercials and and a, to a lesser extent in film. But they also did a pretty good job with that. So when I came out the other side, we kind of were familiar to many music supervisors, the ones who do the buying for placement in film and television. So having a run on a major publisher where they really 
put our brand, my brand out there to music supervisors allowed me to cash in on that later with just an administration deal and keep more of the money, you know. So there's good and bad to all of it. Yeah, I want to follow up on that that I, that I should point out, even though I've always had an admin deal. David's point is great about how it's like, yeah, if it if it's you get some money up front that allows you to continue doing the thing that is making you the money in the first place, it, there's an advantage. And the other is it sh- I really do feel that publishers work harder to place music that they have an ownership position in into film, TV, and um, commercial than music that they're just administering because they are going to make more money on the back end. And I'm not dissing these people or saying they're cold-hearted capitalists or anything. They're in this line of work as opposed to like the oil business or the shoe business because they love music. However, it is a business and these are companies and they need to make money too. And so it's... um. There definitely are advantages to it where, number one, the money you get up front, especially you read about some like like modern day rappers and like the size of the publishing deals. The money is so enormous up front and the if it's a life changing amount of money. But the other thing is that you could, as David found, enter into an agreement with somebody where the terms aren't too draconian and they're working your catalog more and you might make more money on the back end. There's advantages to every way. Now, the, <laughs> there's an important thing that I said there was that they gave me enough money that I could live on for three years. They didn't make me rich, <laughs> right? Money. Yeah. right? But, <laughs> but the calculation was specifically this is like, well, if I'm not on the road, because, you know, previously to that, you know, I've been on the road like nine months a year for like five years or something like that. It was like. And it's hard to write songs on the road. So my calculation was, well, if I can be on the road like maybe four months out of the year to promote this record and the other eight months, I'm just writing the music for the next record. It's I'm just going to write more songs. It's going to be better quality. Um, I'm just literally, even though I'm giving up a sh- bigger share of my royalties, I'm going to still overall make it up, right, mm-hmm. is what I thought. But yeah, so it, that was a yeah, and 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 the other thing is you don't want the advance to be so big that it's just one record that you do with them, right? You know what I mean? To where they can't. Well, let's give them another try. You kind of want that, right? You want it like big enough that they're vested in it mm-hmm. as an advance, but that you know you, they'll work with you through a couple albums. You know what I mean, or for a few years, right? That's my philosophy. Well, as I said, we will be revisiting songwriter agreements in future episodes. Um, but to switch gears, there are two sides of publishing, which is publishing administration, which is what we've been talking about with licensing, registering works, copyrights, etc. There's also the creative side of publishing, which I wasn't first familiar with um, in my career. But creative publishing is like pitching songs, working with production music libraries to get song placements. David Lowry, why don't you talk about that in more depth, kind of what is entailed in the creative side of publishing? Well, you mean as far as what the publisher 
is do, the yeah. activities that the publisher does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So generally, um, you, you like if you go and work for a publishing company, it's kind of bifurcated into sort of two main camps, which is people like you, Nick, who go around and make sure all the licenses are in place and look up the proper rights holders and the co-writers and and you know, and then also make sure songs are registered in the big databases globally. The money's coming in, and just all of that, like almost like forensic, you know, money accounting sort of detective work, right? And then there's the other side where you get to, you know, listen to songwriters' songs that they send in, or go see a show by some band, and you're like, hey. You know this uh, this guitar player is writing some great songs. Maybe we should get him a, a you know a publishing deal and have him co-write with some of our artists, or or perhaps uh, you know you're reviewing uh, somebody's got a video game, right? And you're like, oh, you know, um, you know, I know exactly which song needs to go in this part of the video game or in this part of the video game. And, and, you know, just sort of matching things to the graphics or, or, or even just like working with your songwriter and saying, Hey, um, you know, the song is, you know, the bridge, the bridge is almost the hook of the song. What if that became the chorus, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So there's kind of these two parts uh, the publishing business, if you're working in the publishing bi- business. I think, though, ultimately, um, the people who are best um, at, at uh, you know, um, the the creative side also have to have a pretty good, um, you know, sort of right brain, like also just sort of have to know how to be able to do that stuff as well too, right? Because you're not gonna you're not gonna start out placing songs in, you know, superhero uh, movies, right? <laughs> yeah. You're gonna start cool, out someplace else though. Yeah, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So the last two questions I have I'll direct to both of you and we'll start with Barbie. You both were in there amongst the music industry before streaming was popular or as popular as it is today. Um, could you kind of talk about what publishing was like then and then how has it changed from then to now? Well, the thing that really jumps to my mind is the um, balance of payouts um, between songwriters and recording artists. And again, this gets back to keeping track of that the artist. Uh, is performing the song, singing, playing, whatever, and that the songwriter has written the thing. So um, for years and years and years, songwriters, in my opinion, really had the financial edge because in a record contract, the artist royalties are used to pay back any debt that the artist has Um, incurred with the record label as an advance so that they can have a fund to produce their record to begin with. And it can take years and years and years of artist royalties for this to be paid back. But the mechanical royalties that David talked about, those are not recoupable. That's an stream that goes straight to the songwriter 
right away. And so um, they're not recoupable on the typical, traditionally, I mean, there's exceptions, but stick to the basics, the way things used to generally be. And on the performance side, that is the public performance on radio airplay, which used to be king before streaming, there are no royalties for radio airplay paid to artists in the United States of America. The other countries who do not pay royalties to artists for their, their performances on the radio are like China and Iran and North Korea. There's not many. The United States is in that group. China, China actually does, but China, but, China not, but, but they, well, they do now, but Iran, right. yeah, it's Iran, right. North Korea, Syria, Afghanistan. It's like six countries, right? Yeah. And the United States. It's kind of weird that we only pay the songwriter and not the performer. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Though. That's fine. You made a great point. They only pay the songwriters. So for years, especially somebody like um, Hoyt Axton, who's a country songwriter who wrote tons of songs that other people know, but they have no idea who this guy is. Or Paul Williams, who wrote tons of hit songs. And he had some hits on his own, but his primary gig was writing songs. So it used to be that because radio hits, the songwriters made all the money and the artists made none. And record sales, the artist royalties could take a long time to recoup. And the mechanical royalties for songwriting came in right off the bat that the song publishing side was, you know, could make you can make a lot more money faster. In streaming world, radio music being played on the radio is down. Um, record sales, obviously, physical media down. Downloads, they will completely disappear sooner than later. And so we get into streaming where it's about 85% of the rights payout on a stream goes to the artist, whereas 15% goes to the publishing side. So to me, Nick, that's the biggest difference that jumps to mind right now is that we go from uh, physical media and radio where the songwriting, the publishing side was making the lion's share of the royalties to a streaming environment in which the master recording side makes the lion's share of the royalties. So um, so my take on that is that part of it is what you just covered. Um, there's also the funny dynamic of streaming where essentially when you bought an album, you paid all the mechanical royalties to the songwriter up front at that time, whether you listen to that album once, whether you listen to that album 400 times, right? And um, whether you listen to four songs from the album or all of them, right? So instead you replace it with this dynamic where your royalties that you get from mechanical royalties now are for that album are often spread out over years and years and years. And people don't, you can look, go to any album, modern album, and look at the number of spins that it has relative on Apple, where there's a little bar graph on Apple Music or Spotify, and you'll see the later the song is in the album, the less likely it's to be played unless it's a hit. So essentially you got paid for every song up front, right? All the mechanical royalties up front. Now you wait years and, you know, maybe track 10 never gets played, you know, maybe you never get there because the album is front loaded, right? So that changed a lot of the dynamic, but then also objectively, 
the, the, the amount of music that your typical consumer, you know, somebody at a college age consumer gets for like, you know, $10 a month. I, it's an extraordinary bargain compared to what they used to pay for music. Right. So, you know, your typical college age, you know, music fan was was basically, you know, probably spending the equivalent of like about a hundred dollars a month on music, you know, or you know, maybe if you weren't so into it, you're spending, you know, thirty dollars a month on music, right? The the and and that's significantly less than what your core demographic spends now, right? You sort of uh you you kind of cannibalized your super consumer of music by giving everybody essentially the same streaming rate, actually even discounting the streaming rate for students, right? Which were the core consumers of music. So it's objectively lower uh, uh, amount of money that you're getting from the consumer. So um, it's, it's come up a little bit in the last uh, four years. It's, it's healthier than it was, but, it's there's just not as much money coming into rights holders now. Also, the second thing I'd like to say is because we can immediately see when a song goes sort of viral, you also see that a lot of the publishing deals and advances, the majority of that kind of money goes to sort of these viral sort of, you know, songs that are like, sort of these immediate hits that may not last as long, right? Whereas before publishers couldn't really, they were getting in there and trying to buy songs or cut publishing deals when all they had was, you know, the songs and they sort of had to just sort of judge which were sort of of higher quality, right? Um, that would last a longer period of time. Frankly, I think that the publishers probably are making an, mistake lately by overbuying, overpaying for songs that aren't going to last very long. That'll just be worthless in five years, right? We've always known that pop songs, top 40 type pop songs do not generate as much revenue in the long term as album genres like country, Americana, metal, you know, like these album genres do, right? Anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and then to wrap everything up, um, Barbie, again, we'll start with you. Where do you see the future of publishing heading to? Is there a certain area of publishing you think is going to take over? Any new ideas? I know we talked about streaming and stuff, but anything besides streaming that you think is going to spearhead the way forward? Um, one of my coworkers recently was asking about, like, nfts and music um quite off topic but that's pretty interesting and you know as david knows i love to have a little plug for every episode uh plugging your own show but we do have an episode on nfts and music in series one if anybody does want to listen to it but david what do you think well the first thing is i think i should have listened to your episode about nfts before you asked me this question but um in general I mean, where we go from streaming, I don't know. Are they going to embed a chip in our brains where we just have to 
music streaming in there. It's really hard to imagine. Um, I am curious about um, where we're going with these massive songwriter catalog purchases where Dylan, 300, $400 million or something. And now it's Springsteen has sold his catalog, including his master recordings, which he shrewdly maintained ownership of his entire career for $500 million. And I've seen a few other artists and songwriters lately who have sold the catalog. And some of them, I'm a little shocked. And I wonder if there's going to be a feeding frenzy um, or if there are going to be predictive models as to, you know, David just pointed out album genres. Yeah, they do better in the long run that the uh, flash in the pan one hit wonder pop song, you know, it's a candy bar. It's, it's gone a lot sooner. And so I'm curious if um, there's going to be a feeding frenzy of these song catalog purchases. And if there's going to be predictive models, like there's all these models like, pack a hit if you follow these these five easy rules you can write a hit song is it going to be these songs match this very limited group of criteria that we have that also are shared by the catalogs of bruce springsteen bob dylan you know paul mccartney uh whoever has sold you know what i'm saying it's like is there are we going to have are, are we trying to create uh or is there going to be some attempt to have like a formula for creating a legacy catalog? I really don't know. But that whole thing about these massive purchases and seeing them trickle out into a few unexpected songwriters to me has really made me wonder about that. Well, I think David brings up a great point. There's uh, private equity getting into uh, uh, buying publishing catalogs is largely a function of interest rates though is what i'll say because large private equity firms can borrow money at a low interest rate so can publisher big publishers too and then essentially they buy a bunch of songs and that this pr produces a stream of revenue that produces a better rate of a return that covers the money that they borrow right? So that's part of what's happened with these large catalogs. I know I don't want to get too deep into uh, massive finance equity sort of talk here or something like that. But as interest rates come back up, I think it's going to put a damper on these huge collections of songs and these, you know, these cattle, these private equity people who are buying up huge collections of songs, large copyrights, important copyrights that will get played probably over and over again for another 20, 30 years. Um, but so the writers who've recently been selling out, I think they timed the market well. Because I don't know if three years from now, Springsteen would get depending on where interest rates are, I don't know if he would get $500 million. That said, um, as far as music publishing goes, there's this thing called the metaverse being talked about. Now, whether it's Facebook sort of semi-dystopian, all immersive sort of idea that they have where you're literally in another reality, or whether it's 
Apple's more kind of friendly sort of overlay that they're envisioning, enhanced kind of reality, kind of an overlay of what you normally see, maybe through some sort of glasses or something like that. Music's going to be in there. And that's interesting because it's kind of a sync. So I think the metaverse or enhanced reality, however it comes out, is actually probably going to be a revenue source that I don't know how big it's going to be, but it's probably going to pay better than streaming does. So I'm looking forward to that. And then finally, I think publishing, uh, the creative side of publishing is primed for a big comeback because you re it's, you know, the genius of Steve Jobs is not, Okay, so the Steve Jobs, when he invent when he was working on the iPhone, people had tried to sell like really good um, uh, handset makers had come up with smartphones, and the consumer didn't want them. All consumer surveys showed that people didn't want smartphones, right? So what Steve Jobs did was just basically eh, hasn't been really envisioned right, right? So Steve Jobs' genius with the iPhone was he made so much money for Apple um, because he gave consumers what they didn't know they wanted yet, right? They didn't know they wanted that yet, right? And that's where the creative side of publishing comes back in. Those uh, executives and those publishers that can kind of scout out the emerging talent when it's cheap, buy low, and and develop these songs into monsters. I think that's the next frontier. It's not rolling up a bunch of songs into private equity, publicly traded funds, you know? It's going back to the basics. So I'm bullish on both for songwriters, well, partly because it can't get much worse, um, but I'm bullish for songwriters, both with, with metaverse, enhanced reality, and I'm bullish on being a publisher, too. If you, you know, try to seek out what the publisher doesn't know, that what the public doesn't know that they want. Hey, we ended a podcast on a happy note, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite rare that we do that. <laughs> yep. And Barbie, I have a special outro just for you. Okay. You say that okay so suspiciously. But it's my pleasure to finally say this after hearing you say it for so long. I've wasted a good hour and 15 minutes of your time. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to our listeners about music publishing, and I hope we get to talk again soon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being on here, David. It means a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lotus Right to Watch. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, if you'd like to join in on the conversation, you can add us on Twitter at Otters Rights or on Facebook at Otters Rights Watch, or you can check out our website at OttersRightsWatch.com. If you missed that or you want more information on this episode, please check out the show notes for further research. We will catch you again next time where we watch for Otters Rights. Cheers. <laughs>